Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to a new episode of Talking France, a podcast produced by the local, made possible by our members. France is still mired in crisis, and this week we'll focus on why the mood of the country has become so angry. We'll also look at why pension reform protests have turned violent, and who are these black-clad protesters waving umbrellas who seem to be behind much of the trouble once again. We'll also look at why water supply to agriculture resulted in an almighty battle between protesters and police in western France at the weekend, which saw police riot vans go up in flames and two protesters left fighting for their lives. Away from protests that are gripping France, we'll look at just how good a country France is to live in if you're a woman. From maternity leave to wages, is there really égalité in France? And we'll find out why the country loves an April fish and hear some tips to help foreigners settle in France. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined by our resident talking brains, the local France's editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and French politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, before I get into the serious stuff, I'm sat here holding a bottle of Pinot de Charente that you brought back from Western France. What is Pinot de Charente? This is a little tipple I really like. As you said, I was down in Charente last week, so I brought you back a bottle because I'm nice like that. What it is, is it's a fortified wine. It's quite sweet. 17% alcohol. Yeah, so yeah, not crazy strong, but a little bit stronger right. than uh, than wine. It's usually drunk as an aperitif, a pre, pre-dinner drink. You'd have it over ice, but you also quite often have it served with foie gras because anything sweet is nice with the sort of fatty duck liver, if you like that kind of thing. Lovely. And you can have it as a digestif as well. I quite like it as an after-dinner drink that it's a um, little bit of sweet thing to have with your coffee. That's maybe a bit less common, but okay. I like it because uh, it's a little bit less strong than some of the other digestifs. So if you need to be able to function the next day, I think it's quite nice to have it the, uh, at the end of your meal. And is it appropriate for opening it during podcast recording or not? Yeah, definitely. It's only 17%. Ooh, it smells That's strong, yeah. Like sherry almost, no? Yeah, it's a fortified wine. So it's quite okay. sweet. So it is a bit like sherry or Madeira or something like that. But Brilliant. It's Thanks for that. produced with the local wine. Very kind of you to bring me a bottle. Aren't I? Right, let's get into the serious news, Emma. What are we talking about in France this week? We are, of course, still talking about the political crisis and the mood of the country, which has, in recent days, turned angry. It's been another... Crazy week. There's been demos, clashes in Paris, fires, of course. Rubbish is still piled up on the streets. Even the visit of King Charles III was cancelled at the request of the French government. Emma, it seems like there is a lot of anger out there. Yeah, it does. And the perspective from people outside of France, the question that I've been asked most over the past week by listeners to this podcast, readers of the local, my friends, my family, is literally just why are the French so angry that this pension reform, it's fairly moderate, really. It's only asking people to work until they're 64, which is still younger than most other countries. And yet it seems like France is now ablaze. The answer to that, we've kind of talked about this before, France isn't really ablaze. There has been some trouble in some parts of a few cities that always looks worse than it is on the news. But moving away from that, it is true that there is enormous anger in France right now. And I think it really comes down to two things. 
in the immediate term, there's anger about the way the government has handled this pension protest. But this also feeds into a longer history of French protest and what one French commentator has described as the romanticisation of the mob in France. Mm. Readers have been asking us the question. People have asked you the question and me, you know, friends from abroad. How do we explain this anger? You know, you said it's more than pension reform. What is it? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this is not just about pension reform any longer, that We talked last week about how the government has used this constitutional power known as Article 49.3 to push the reform through Parliament without a vote. And it was at that point that the protest really started to kick off. And that's when we started to see these violent clashes. People feel very strongly that this is undemocratic, that the government has ignored the clearly stated will of the people. You know, these demos have been regularly attracting a million marchers and has ignored the parliament itself to push through what it wants. Mm, we've seen a lot of younger marchers this week, a lot of anti-police slogans, anti-Macron. But uh, we went out onto the streets and spoke to some of the marchers. Emma, what do they have to say? Yeah, Jen went out on Tuesday to talk to the marchers. Uh, here's some of the things that people told her. So we have Camille, who's 26. She said that the anger French people feel is bigger than pension reforms. For a lot of us young people, we feel like we've not been listened to. Macron must realise that he was elected by default, not because we voted for his mandate specifically, is her view on this. And then another Camille, it's a common name in France, this time a 24-year-old woman who was at the protest with her mum. She said, I think there are many reasons for the anger that you see in France right now, but mostly it's the feeling that people have been mocked. The concept of democracy itself has been put into question. This is more than just pensions. And I think that is the, the key, that this feeds into a more general anger that many people still feel at Emmanuel Macron personally and his style of governing, which is often seen as arrogant, remote, dictatorial. We talked last week about how they're calling him Le Roi, the the king. But another factor that's filled into this over the last week is policing. French police are often accused of violence, and we've seen quite a few photos and films this week showing what seems to be some very heavy-handed response to the protests. Now, there are two sides to these things, of course, but these images have led into further anger against the state, of which, of course, the police are the instruments of the state on the street. Yes, and we've seen this kind of uh, resentment towards Macron, you know, over recent years throughout his presidency, really, obviously notably during the Gilets Jaunes protests. Um, I don't know whether you spotted it, Emma, but I heard the uh, there's a song that the protesters have been singing and I've heard it a few times and I've been trying to work out what the words are. And of course it is an anti-Macron song. I was going to play a clip on the podcast, but I don't think we've got the right, so I'm just going to sing it. Is that all right with you? Brilliant, yes, okay, get here we go. It. I'm probably going to get the tune wrong. My voice is a bit ropey, but it goes a little bit like this. On est là, on est là, même si Macron ne veut pas là, nous on est là, pour l'honneur des travailleurs, pour une, moment, une monde meilleure, même si Macron ne veut pas là, nous on est là. That's pretty ropey. Uh, just for the sake of anyone who didn't understand it, it's basically saying we're there and even if Macron doesn't want us there, we are there for the honour of workers and for a better world, even if Macron doesn't want it, we are there. They are there and they're singing about Macron. He really is a bit of a figure of hate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard that. And the other one that I'm hearing again on protest, which is that uh, it's not really specific to this. You hear it a lot on protests is the old classic to le monde déteste la police. Yeah. Everyone hates the police. Mm. Um, and again, that's, you know, seen as the police are the mm. instrument of the state and that they're repressing legitimate protest, rightly or wrongly. But that's the, the view. Mm. Now, protests in France go quickly to the street, Emma, and the yeah. French are basically not afraid to make their voices heard. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's certainly true. You know, it, it's 
common that uh, there are plenty of protests in France. Sometimes they do get violent. And I mean, in my own experience, I do find that the average French person is quite politically engaged. You know, conversation here turns to politics quite quickly, activism, people are more likely to get involved in demos in other countries, I think. So even people who aren't protesting might be sort of involved in this. And I think in part, this is due to the country's sort of founding myth, the creation of of the French Republic, of course, is the revolution when people overthrew the monarchy and declared a republic of liberté, égalité, fraternité. But while overseas commentators often refer to the revolution when they're sort of reporting on protests from France, the big totemic moment in France itself is May 1968. And we've been seeing more and more banners and graffiti referring to May 68 over the last week. And people sort of starting to ask if these protests are a new May 68 for France. Yeah, that's in, indeed that's true. I've noticed that myself. You know, young students threatening you or with a banner saying, if you bring us 49.3, we'll bring you 1968 or May 68. Do we know what actually happened in May 68? We hear it a lot, Emma. Remind us of what happened back then. Yeah, exactly. Um, This actually started as a student protest uh, in 1968. Left-wing student groups in Paris were protesting about university funding and also more widely calling for social changes in a France that was at that point still a very conservative country and it was led by the 77-year-old, extremely socially conservative Charles de Gaulle. In response to this protest, we saw a very heavy-handed police response, so things do not change. This heavy-handed police response to the university of, to the occupation of university buildings brought on a, a lot of sympathy for strikers. Their cause was kind of taken up by a lot of artists, media figures, international press, and unions in France declared a one-day sympathy strike. So the original issue for the students, there was quite a lot of concessions made to them, but by this time unions were involved. They declared more strikes, although their demands were focused much more on higher pay and improvements in working conditions, which wasn't really anything the original protest was about. And then other groups such as women's rights campaigners also got involved in the marches, demos, occupation of buildings... So what we eventually see is what they call in French a convergence de lutte, which is a, a series of different struggle or issues all coming together in a kind of general anger, which is kind of what happened in May 68. At the height of the protest, 22% of the population were involved in the strikes. The government basically ceased to function and even de Gaulle himself briefly fled to Germany. Mm. He wasn't actually toppled by the protests. A lot of people think he was, but he wasn't. He was forced into calling an election, but he won the election fairly convincingly. And he eventually resigned the following year after losing a referendum about a completely different issue. But although it didn't actually overthrow the government, May 68 still exists as this kind of touchstone of French protests of the time the people brought the country to a halt and forced change. Mm. I think it's a good time to bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joined us on the line from Normandy. I asked John why the mood of France had turned so angry and why the protests against pension reforms had become violent. The connection between the violence we saw last Thursday in Paris and the anger in the country is something that sort of escapes me, really. The the violence last week was largely from people who are sort of almost professionally violent, you know, people who are extreme left, who are wanting to bring down the country, bring down the state, bring down capitalism. Their interest in pension reform is minimal. Their hatred for the unions and for the the left-wing parties is almost as great as that for their hatred for Macron. And yet this is somehow reported by all of us, you know, the international media, the national media, and taken by politicians themselves as somehow 
kind of and all the same a kind of legitimate expression, or perhaps an illegitimate expression, but a débordement, an excess of the anger that's in the country. Well, it seems to me that the two things are not so directly connected as that. And there's almost a sort of hypocrisy on the part of both the, the sort of legitimate left-wing opposition and the government in not encouraging this violence, but in sort of making political use of it at the same time. I mean, Mélenchon refuses to condemn it. Macron is posing now as the sort of defender of legitimate Republican democratic values against this, these threats to democracy, which is also legitimate. But they're both, you know, although they they aren't necessarily creating the anger directly or, or the violence directly, they're both trying to use it. So there's this strange melee of, of interest in not sort of saying that this violence is something completely separate in the end, that the people involved in it have little to do with the, with the protests overall. There is some overlap. I think some Lycée students, university students are pulled in because, you know, young people uh, perhaps are more ready to express themselves in, in a more extreme way, in that way, not all, but some. So it's very difficult to understand why the violence has spread now. I don't think it is directly because of, of the pension reform. I don't think it's directly because of use of 493, but it's the people who are out there the whole time, violent groups often from abroad, not just France, who are able to use the sort of level of anger in the country. And the fact that they're doing what they're doing is sort of it's sort of exploited by the opposition to the pension reform. It's also exploited to some extent by the government. So there is a sort of almost a kind of conspiracy of um, different conflicting interests to not to keep the violence going, but not to speak genuinely what the violence is, which is something quite separate, really, from the anger about pension reform itself. John, the, the, the images that have kind of gone around the world have caused you know, a fair amount of shock abroad. They've got a lot of global media attention. But perhaps that, you know, there's nothing new in France. We've seen violent protests in recent years, you know, over labor law reforms under former President Francois Hollande and under Macron. Then, of course, the Gilets Jaunes movement that you mentioned was marred by kind of extreme violence, especially at the beginning. Does this feel any different? What's happening now? Things have changed, Ben. You know, political violence is a strange phenomenon in France. It's, you know, there is a sort of romanticization of the idea of the state having been created in a revolution. And someone like Mélenchon's political hero is, is Robespierre still, you know. So there is a sense that violence is, in a sense, legitimate. At the same time, a, a great reliance on the state, something I've described before as a sort of the teenage attitude French to the state, both reliance on and sort of tantrums against at the same time. So what's changed, I think, is that, I, you know, I've been writing on France 25, 26 years, that the violence used to be kind of theatrical in a way. There were kind of rules of engagement. It has got worse. You know, the kinds of almost lethal weapons that are being used are by some of the protesters, uh, acid and petanque balls and things, are go beyond what used to be the case in, in farmers' demonstrations, fishermen's demonstrations, that kind of thing, which I've covered o- over the years. The police, you know, you can't completely separate all this from the actions of the police. And the French police we've spoken about before, are somewhat a law unto themselves, and they often do behave in unfortunate ways in, during these demonstrations. They're sort of a weird mixture of extremely stoic and professional, some of the units and others who seem to feel they have a right when they're not being observed directly to do what they want and to attack anyone and to arrest anyone. And a lot of the arrests of people who were released the next day because there was nothing at all for them to have been arrested for. So that, you know, is also part of the mix, if you like. But I think there has been a shift towards much more extreme forms of violence in demonstrations in recent years. You could see that the worst of the Gilets Jaunes movement, when you remember they were burning newspaper kiosks on the Champs-Élysées. And then last Thursday, much less so last night, I think it was the violence yesterday was much less than had been inspected. But the fact that we, we had all these smashed banks and shops and 
bus shelters and we've got that as a normal night is in itself tells you something about what's going on thanks to john who joined us on the line from normandy and if you want to hear more analysis on the current state of french politics and the crisis in the country from john look out for a bonus podcast episode of talking france that we will release later in the week Now, who are we talking about in the news in France this week? Well, this is one group you will hear about a lot when we're talking about French protests. Now, if you've seen news footage of violence in France, you will almost certainly have seen Black Bloc, or at least their handiwork. These are the young people normally who turn up at demos and generally create havoc, smashing windows of banks and high-end stores and even Bus stops, poor bus stops, starting fires and generally getting into violent confrontations with police. They're often described as protesters, but they're rarely actually attached to the main protest group. And what they really are is something quite different. They turn up at protests with the specific intention to cause trouble and they're organised. They show up with their faces covered or use umbrellas to actually cover their identities. And they often have some kind of gas mask or goggles to avoid the effects of tear gas. And they come armed with lighters, flares or tools such as hammers. Jen, the Black Bloc are quite a fearsome group, as the way I've described it. Anyway, just tell us more about them. Yeah, so basically, as you explained, the gist of it is that these are the folks that come to protests dressed in all black, and they're often associated with property destruction and generally wreaking havoc. Typically, Black Bloc operates by infiltrating the march and then coming out into the front of the demonstration to engage with police or to destroy property. But then they typically disperse. They run off into very different directions, which makes it really hard for police to find or arrest them. As such, people often accuse them of being casseurs, basically vandals or hooligans just bent on breaking stuff. But there are some ideological bases. Black Bloc members are generally anti-capitalist and opposed to globalization. So, for example, they might target a McDonald's or a bank, specifically due to the symbolic nature of breaking a McDonald's or bank window. Yes, now they don't seem to be, you know, a part of any movement. I've heard them described more as a kind of method of protesting rather than a movement in itself. And often traditional protest leaders end up, you know, not wanting their presence at all because they tend to hijack the protest and also the media coverage ends up more about the violence, for example, in recent pension reform protests than actual the actual reform itself. When did these black box first emerge, Jen, and, you know, particularly in France, and where? So we should go back to the 1980s. That's where we first start hearing about black bloc. And we actually go back to Berlin. So it was in West Berlin. Police reportedly gave the movement of people grouping together, usually armed with sticks, the name of a black bloc. And they would maneuver in the form of a bloc at the time to protect one another or to confront police as a unit. Now, in the 2000s, we started hearing about Black Bloc again when about 1,000 people, part of a radical anti-capitalist bloc, joined in on an anti-globalization rally against the IMF and World Bank. But in France, we don't really start hearing about Black Bloc until around 2009 during a NATO summit in Strasbourg where we start to see this form of protest really for the first time in France. Then they made a name for themselves in France in 2016 during the protest against labor reform um, when they formed at the front of, of marches and then again during the Yellow Vest movement in 2018 and 2019 when they were involved with violent clashes and destroying chic stores like on the Champs-Élysées. Now when it comes to Black Bloc, they don't obviously have spokespeople or you know, give interviews to the media to explain what their cause is. We just hear them described as kind of Marxist, anti-capitalist, anarchist, etc. Do we know anything more about them and what they stand for? 
Well, honestly, in terms of who they are and what they stand for, it's a bit tricky to give a complete picture of the Black Bloc. They're not part of a union or an activist group like Greenpeace, and it's hard to say what they exactly stand for because they stay anonymous most of the time they're wearing face coverings. And when it comes to communication, they stick to really um, private channels like Telegram or Signal to avoid being tracked and identified. And in terms of their actions, what we do know is that they, they mainly target banks, high-end stores, other symbols of capitalism. Um, and a lot of times the graffiti that they spray has anti-capitalist slogans. And their other target is the police. So you'll see lots of anti-police graffiti after a protest involving black blocks. And they do frequently attack police or throw missiles such as bottles or paving slabs. I've often seen them referred to as just kids of teachers. Are they just a bunch of angry kids, Jen, wanting to break stuff? Some are, some aren't. Um, the local's former journalist, Ingrid Burgo, interviewed a Black Bloc member who was 35 years old, a woman, a Parisian, and a former server at a restaurant who lost her job during COVID. And she told the local, to me, protests are just walking in the street. There's no point in that, not now. Protesting worked when we had presidents who listened to the people, but this government doesn't care. And regarding the messaging of Black Bloc, she said some carry the anti-capitalist message of smashing up banks, but mostly there's just anger and hatred. Either we keep all that inside, get ill and end up on antidepressants, or we dress up in black and explode on the streets. And they certainly do, and they've been making their presence felt in the pension reform protests in recent days. Thank you, Jen, for that. Now, moving on to where in France we're talking about this week. So sticking with the theme of anger and violence and protests, we need to talk about Saint-Soline in Western France, the site of a recent environmental protest, which many listeners might have seen the images of. Jen... First, where is Saint-Soline and tell us what happened at the weekend. So Saint-Soline is located in the département of Deux-Sèvres, which is in the southwest of France. It's not too far from La Rochelle. And it's the location of a mega basin, kind of a reservoir, as I would translate it in English. And it's a project that's intended to deal with water shortages. So the thing is that these mega bassins, uh, as you might say in French, have been really controversial here in France. Protests have been going on um, in various forms for over a year. And in Saint-Soline, protest camps were set up. The project, which which is backed by about 400 local farmers, would create a network of 16 giant storage areas that would allow those farmers to use uh, the water collected there as for irrigation during droughts, which, as we know, droughts are becoming more common in France and finding a solution to them is becoming more and more important. The controversy, though, is that these mega basins would damage valuable wetland areas. The west of France has several wetland areas that are home to a diverse group of wildlife, plus the area is known for salt marshes that produce the special salt fleur de sel. Um, but on the other side, protesters also say that these water tanks would drain water from natural underground water supplies and therefore make droughts worse for local residents and smaller farmers. Essentially, they see these bassins, these, these reservoirs, as water theft from locals by big agribusinesses. Okay, this dispute you uh, have described uh, led to a huge kind of battle in a field this weekend, Jen, between police and protesters. Just tell us more about that. Yeah, so last weekend there were violent clashes in Sansonin that left two protesters fighting for their lives and 29 police officers injured. Two journalists were also reportedly injured and protest organizers reported that at least 200 protesters had some form of injury. Uh, one apparently also lost an eye. According to the government, there were around 8,000 protesters present along with about 3,200 police officers. The French Ministry of Interior has said in a report that came out on Wednesday that around 800 to 1,000 of those protesters were quote-unquote radicals and that 400 to 500 
100 were, quote, experienced and ultra-violent black bloc members. Now, on the side of the protesters, they were quick to denounce excessive force by police. The videos on the scene honestly are very surreal. You see police forces on four-wheelers, tear gas hanging all over the air, fires burning in police vehicles. It really honestly kind of looks like a, a war scene or something out of Mad Max. One of the two seriously injured protesters was reportedly struck in the head by a tear gas grenade, and he apparently uh, was actually registered on the Fish S. Now, the Fish S, S standing for Sécurité d'État, is the government's watch list essentially for people who are threats to national security. That includes terror suspects, people who have been radicalized, and, and also people involved in um, extreme forms of violent protest. Yes, Jen, so sorry, you said the 16 of these mega basins planned. This sounds like this is a problem, a movement that's not going to go away. We may see more protests in the future. Yeah, I definitely think that um, we'll see more protests in the future. You know, we're we're looking at environmental issues as becoming more and more important to the French public, um, especially, you know, we've talked about it in previous podcast episodes, but drought is something that France is going to have to contend with quite a lot in the upcoming years. So I definitely think that we'll see more, um, more movement around that subject. Thanks, Jen. Now, Emma, as I promised in the intro, we are going to look into whether France is a good country to live in. If you're a woman, do you have an answer for us? Is it clear cut? Is it a good country if you're a woman? Well, France has lots of good stuff in it, like high quality healthcare, free education, generous social security, net, Pinot de Charente to drink. All of these things obviously affect everybody. But what we're looking at here is issues that specifically affect women. So gender equality, healthcare, including contraception and violence against women. According to the European Institute for Gender Equality, France does pretty well. By its ranking, it's the fourth best country in the EU after Sweden, Denmark and the Netherlands, countries that have a real reputation for gender equality. If we're looking at the World Economics Forum's gender report, they compare obviously all the countries in the world, that doesn't place France quite so highly. It comes out 17th place behind also Switzerland and Ireland, but it's still well towards the top of the table. And both of those reports are comparing things like work and education opportunities, financial equality, healthcare and safety. So France overall does pretty well. Now, there's a couple of of news stories that have given us reason to talk about this very subject. Emma, just fill us in on those. Yeah, definitely. The one that we've had this week is actually not a national thing. It's a local thing. But the town hall of Saint-Ouen, which is just outside Paris, they've made headlines by introducing menstrual leave for employees. And this is modelled on a new law that's being brought in in Spain. It isn't a national law, but it's a first for France. The French government has, however, in recent years made menstrual products free in education establishments, while women aged 25 and under can also obtain free reusable menstrual products like cups or period pants from pharmacies and women and men as well aged 25 and under can also access free contraception via pharmacies these are changes that have come in uh, in the last year but I think perhaps the most headline grabbing recent political act has been one that hasn't actually come into effect yet but hopefully it will the French parliament voted overwhelmingly in favour of enshrining the right to abortion into the French constitution something that would be a European first on a a cultural level I think the the idea of equality between men and women is taken quite seriously as a French value many foreigners who are applying for French citizenship for example recount being asked if they support this as a key French value so it is something that we're at least talking about this is all interesting and obviously talking about egalité and you know carving it into buildings etc is a lot easier than actually creating 
an equal society, is it not? Yeah, I mean, we kind of we started off with the good things, but it's not all the rosy picture in France by yet by any stretch of the imagination. I think the number one on this list of the bad thing has to be violence against women, particularly the shockingly high rate of feminicide, that is, women who are killed by current or former partners or family members in France. This is obviously not a problem that's specific to France, but France has the second highest feminicide rate in Europe. In 2021, 146 women were killed by a current or former partner, and these numbers are actually rising year on year. It's a major problem in France, and there's also a major problem with how police deal with domestic violence, and we've seen a a depressingly endless parade of cases where murdered women had been in contact with police asking for help and protection from violent men and were simply let down. I remember during the recent election campaign, Emmanuel Macron went along on some kind of politician's visit to a women's violence charity and, you know, listened in as they took calls from people. And one of the calls they took was from a woman who was actually at a police station asking the police to help her collect her belongings from a home where she'd fled a violent partner. And the police were just saying to her, oh, madame, we cannot help you. This is uh, this is a personal matter. We'd love to, but this is not our job. And they actually had this quite shocking moment where sort of Macron was on the phone saying, you know, this is the president of the republic. This is your job. But it kind of shows the problem that women have being taken seriously by the police. And in a linked issue, Emma, and um, we've talked about it on this podcast before, there's the problem of street harassment, especially for younger women. What about in terms of employment? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right. There is a culture of sort of everyday sexism that you see on the street and also in the workplace. But if we're looking at the sort of formal protections of, uh, of employee rights, in general, employee rights and social protections are strong in France, both for men and for women. But one area where it's quite weak is parental leave. And what we see in France is nothing like as generous as we see in other European countries, particularly the Nordics, who are kind of world leaders in this. So in France, paid maternity leave is 16 weeks and paternity leave is just 25 days. France does do quite a lot to provide affordable childcare, but the expectation is that both parents will return to work quite soon after having the baby, and people who don't want to do that will be expected to largely finance it themselves if they want extra extra leave. And finally, we have the issue of clothing for Muslim women. Again, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but France's rules on secularity and religious clothing, they're intended to cover everyone, but the reality on the ground is that they disproportionately affect Muslim women who wear the hijab, the Muslim headscarf. This whole topic is kind of a huge issue. We could probably do a whole podcast on it. Maybe we should one day. But this is just kind of an overview of some of the problems that we have. And I think maybe it seems worse in France because France loves to style itself as the country of égalité and perhaps also because France likes to promote this myth of itself as the home of romance and chivalry, which doesn't sit so well with the the problems that we've talked about. Yeah, I was just reading, actually, back in 2013, the then French Minister for Women's Rights set an ambitious target of France becoming a country where men and women are equal by the year 2025. That's just a couple of years away now. And I think one stat that perhaps sums up the work that's still to be done, Emma, is that just that 1% of dads in France take full-time parental leave. This is extra parental leave, you know, after paternity leave and maternity leave, you know, after the birth of their kids, just under 1%. The aim of the government was to get it up to 25%, but there's still work to be done. Yeah, that EU study that we talked about earlier, it gave France 75 out of 100 in its equality rating, so could do better, guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I took 
parental leave actually and it left me kind of worn out and penniless because I think here they get a kind of lump sum of a few hundred euros a month I can't remember exactly the amount I think it was about 400 maybe it can be a serious drop whereas our colleagues in Sweden I think they get 80% of their salary you know covered by the state so the difference is huge yeah definitely and I mean Sweden I think the Nordics in general have done quite a lot of encouraging dads to take up their share of parental leave as Mm. well and we we, we sort of don't see this in France so there is a way to go yet there is a way to go thank you Emma Right, moving on to our reader question. It's a very simple one, although a strange one this week. Emma, I'll leave this in your hands to answer. What is an April fish? Yeah, poisson d'avril is a phrase that you'll hear a lot at this time of year. It's not an actual fish. This is a tradition that occurs on April 1st of playing practical jokes on people. It's basically what we call April Fool's Day in the UK. If you're a parent of a kid in French schools, you might notice they come home from school on April 1st with some sort of paper fish stuck to their back. Um, This year it's on a Saturday, so probably a bit less of that. But it's also more broadly a day for general practical jokes, pranks. The media often get involved, so if you see a particularly weird-looking story on April 1st, be aware it might be a poisson d'avril. The local has got involved in doing these jokes in the past. We might do again. Who knows? Yeah, it's become a bit more than a fish in recent years. We do do the me- we do see the French media, you know, go in for the traditional April Fool's stories, although I did see one, one year about a talking fish. I think it was in Le Parisien or something like that. Clearly a prank. Has it got anything to do with the fish? <laughs> well... Um, I was trying to research this and everyone seems to be a bit confused as to where the actual fish comes from. Some people say it's because April is a bad month for fishing. Uh, So if someone tells you they're eating a fish during April, it must be a joke because it wouldn't be possible to catch one. I don't know. I'm not a fisherman. Other people reference a tradition at the Dunkirk Carnival where the town hall throws dried herring at people Mm. into the crowd. It's one of these funny traditions where the origin seems to be a bit lost in the uh, in the myths of time but we know what it is now so be careful out there on yeah. Saturday don't believe everything you hear and check your backs as well you might find yourself wandering around with a fish stuck to your back exactly. from some local school kid as I probably will thank you Emma now that almost brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France but not quite because we always finish with some life hacks and tips for our listeners this week We've picked out the idea of tips for settling in in France. It's a subject we talked about in last week's podcast. It's a difficult area for new arrivals. Emma, what's your tip for anyone moving to France hoping to settle in? Well, I found one thing that helped me feel more settled in France is kind of trying to follow the French news. When I first moved to France, I worked for an Irish company that kind of had no connection to work to France. And I really just had no idea what was going on. And I think it makes you feel quite sort of isolated if you have no idea what's going on in the country where you live in. Now, obviously, following the news is my job. And I find it helps uh, helps me to understand the country. It gives you something to talk about when you um, meet up with French people, that kind of thing. If you can't quite get involved in following the news, uh, you can at least follow French TV because it's always a good icebreaker to chat to your neighbour about who won Bake Off. But I really would suggest that people try and follow the news. Obviously, you can follow it at the local France. I was going to say, you're just um, pushing membership in the Join the local... <laughs> But we've also put together, I put together a little guide on like who the French media is to, you know, which show, which ones you might like to, to pick up first and which ones are the easiest to follow, which is also available on the local France. But I think it helps for me. It definitely helps if you do get into conversations with French people to know a bit about what's going on in the country. I think for me, I think what I uh, set my mind to was kind of finding a good local or getting to know, you know, local people. So, you know, I remember after... A couple of weeks of being in Paris, I was on first name terms with the manager of Subway. You know, the woman at McDonald's in the day shift was giving me free coffee. But, you know, no, more importantly, just 
go down to your local French bar or cafe and kind of stand at the bar. Don't sit down, stand at the bar so you can get to interact with some of the people coming in and out, some of the other locals. And it could even be an Irish pub. I think, you know, every time I go to an Irish pub in Paris, I find myself, you know, accosted by local French people who want to practice their English. And, you know, it's great if you want to, um, you know, if you want to get to speak to some local people and even practice your French. So, Ben, just to just to be clear, your tips for integrating to France are go to Irish pubs, Subways and McDonald's. Well, that's what I've done and I consider myself fully integrated. It no. might be everyone has their own thing, you know, listeners, <laughs> listeners might not might find something else to do. But look, I mean, the local bar, the local cafe, you know, you get to know uh, Payamu, the local Payamu, wherever it is, get in there early on 11 o'clock <laughs> stay as long as you can and you will come out speaking fluent french by the end of one day i reckon <laughs> yeah totally in small towns though the bar or the cafe is absolutely the center of life so i would agree with that Thank i'm you. not quite so sure about the starbucks yeah but it's I... been no it's been a while since i've been subway or mcdonald's <laughs> jen i agree ben i think i think that like especially when you're new somewhere maybe you don't have friends or family around it's it's good for someone to know your name or to just like know your presence when you go into the store it makes you feel a bit more comfortable so i get it my my tip, basically, when I moved to France, I found myself craving, like, the American food that I can't find in France, like, specifically Mexican food. I, like, love Mexican food, and you can't find black beans here. You can't find, like, half the ingredients that you need. So, basically, I've just sort of, like, decided that I'm just going to make French fusion Mexican food. And honestly, it's been kind of like a fun experiment. It's been a way for me to get more familiar with different types of French ingredients and things that are like local to France. But also what I really like to do is invite friends over to do potlucks and have everybody bring something that's sort of like cultural or referential for them in terms of cooking. And then it's really fun to like compare. And I don't know, I feel like it just gets the conversation going. So that's something that helped me like settle my cravings for my food from home, but also, you know, hang out with friends and try new things. So... Speaking of cravings for food from home, I bought six tins of Heinz baked beans that I found in a little from pre up in uh, the 10th hour of these Is there anything you buy from home, Emma, that you or that you can find in France? Oh, yeah. The one thing I always tell people to bring for me is Marmite. You can buy it over here, but it's crazy it's expensive. expensive. So yeah. I have people smuggling Marmite over to work to France for yeah. me. Yorkshire tea, Monster Munch crisps. Anything for you, Jen, that people bring from home? <laughs> I always have I always have a friend, uh, if they bring like uh, a checked bag, to put a giant bottle of ranch dressing in there for me french salad dressing ranch dressing oh, right. my fellow americans will know what it is <laughs> fair enough jen and that brings us to the end of this week's episode of talking france thanks to you all again for listening we'll be back with more next week softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.